From the American Academy of Dermatology, welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Ben Stoff, Editor-in-Chief. Thanks for tuning in. We're all trying to find the right balance between saving time and providing the best care for our patients. That's why we're excited to tell you about Visual DX. Whether you're trying to solve a challenging case, engage patients by showing them medical imagery that looks like them, or look up the latest treatment options, Visual DX is here to help. Your peers have said recently that you can just see the sense of satisfaction and understanding from the patient while using Visual DX. Try Visual DX for free for seven days, then get 50% off a yearly subscription. Visit visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get the AAD discount. That's visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get started today. Welcome to this issue of Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Aral Kabarian-Skelsey, and today I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Padram Garami, who is the IDP Foundation Endowed Professor of Skin Cancer Research and Professor at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. Dr. Garami is the senior author of work that is being published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology this December on Spitznevi, a reappraisal of the epidemiology of spitzneoplasms in the molecular era, a retrospective cohort study. And this is a, one of the first really large studies of the epidemiology of spitzneoplasms that's utilizing next generation sequencing. And for me as a clinician, I find the diagnosis of a spitz nevus in a middle-aged or older person always gives me pause. I'm always worried. And I think it's been something that's been the dogma that spitz nevi in older people may really represent a melanoma. So it's incredibly important work that you've presented. Before you talk about the overall the study design, can you share with us the most accepted and the newest criteria for spitz neoplasms? Absolutely. Um, thank you for putting this together and having me here today. It's a pleasure. So the way we now define spitz neoplasms, technically, and the way that it's stated in the, the World Health Organization blue, book, blue books on skin tumors, is that we want the combined morphologic and molecular features to be there. And what I mean by that is the lesion should have typical spitzoid morphology, which would include, as the other name of it implies, epithelioid and spindle cell morphology. Typically, the cells have vesicular nuclei with omnipotent eosinophilic glassy cytoplasm. So that's kind of the characteristic cytology. But then we also need a spitz-associated which would basically be a spitz-associated genomic fusion or an activating point mutation in the ATRAF. So if, for example, we found a case that had even classic spitzoid morphology, but the driver was an activating point in BRAS or NRAS, we would not include that into the spitz category. That case would be excluded and called kind of like a spitz mimicker. So what you're looking at is new criteria for the definition of these spitz neoplasms because of the advent of this technology. Yeah. It basically gives us, the, for the first time, to have a more objective 
definition of spits we include this kind of objective genetic piece so it's not just a purely morphologic definition and what different studies shown is that if you look at and and kind of the impetus to even do studies of nature is that basically if we incorporate the genomic definition it really gives us much more clean separation of lesions into those that have similar biologic behavior more precisely what i mean by that is if we look back over the years at those lesions that were called spits and ended up having an aggressive biology the vast majority i'm not going to say every case but the majority of those were probably cases that would not meet the genomic definition of a spits today they were probably cases with a BRAF or an NRAS activating point mutation that mimic the spits morphologically. And that's why those bits mimickers are probably the reason that the word spits nevis strikes fear in the heart of clinicians when they get that diagnosis in adult patients. So before the advent of the next generation sequencing, what was the epidemiology in general for spits nevi? So basically, our impression before sequencing was available was that the highest incidence or highest prevalence of them occurred before ages 0 to 10, then slight decline as we go from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40, but still occurring in those ages, and then a sharp decline to like only rare cases after age 40. I think that's what most people understood the epidemiology to be. And if you look at that older population now or look at those melanoma with the same sequencing, how many of them are turning out to actually be it? So that's a hard question. I can't say exactly what percentage of is that let's say diagnosed as malignant today or maybe overcalled spits. But what I could say is that reasons that I thought looking at spits in older patients would be relatively in place to look was that those cases, when they do occur in older patients, clinicians, pathologists to be very reticent to make that diagnosis. That's one reason why we think of them as being uncommon in older patients. Pathologists, one, are reticent to make the diagnosis and kind of feel that they must be something more aggressive. And number two is that if we look at biopsies that are taking place at different age, every decade of life, when we look at the first decade of life, spitz lesions make up such a high percentage of what's biopsied in kids zero to 10 years mm -hmm. of age. So they seem quite common. But when you look at the ages of 30 to 40 or 40 to 50, even if there's nearly the same number, number of Spitz lesions, they end up comprising such a smaller percentage of the whole because there's so many other things that are being biopsied in that age group. That We have tons of dysplastic nevi, we have lenticos, we have subcares, we have melanomas, we have so many other type of lesions that it kind of drowns out 
the relative percentage that spits make up. But I think if we were to look at the raw numbers, the actual number wouldn't be so different, even in the older age groups. So the decreased frequency is a function of how many other tumors are being biopsied in the older population. Again, the reticence of pathologists to make that diagnosis. Yeah, we understand. Can you talk a little bit about the overall study design? Yes. So what we did was we looked over a three-year period of our data of all the Spitz lesions that we had diagnosed between 2019 and 2022. And there were approximately, I think, 1,200 Spitz nevi that we diagnosed during that three-year period. And I separated that 1,200 cases into cases that we studied with genome that had sequencing performed. And so it was more than just a morphologic diagnosis. The diagnosis was made with a combination morphology and genomics and hence would make the precise definition of what a spitz is according to the WHO. And we had about 140 out of that 1,200 cases that had that genomics involved in diagnosed. Now, when we looked at how that 1,200 cases kind of separated out, um, how many of them occurred during each decade of life, what we found was that there was actually relatively similar frequent cases over the first five decades of life, even between 40 and 50. And then after age 50, there was kind of a, a notable in the frequency. But when we looked at the genomically verified cases, the 140 cases that were studied with genomics, we actually saw even a relatively high frequency up until age 70. So almost 10% of that 140 spits that were studied by genomics occurred between ages 60 and 70. So they're not entirely uncommon in those age ranges. So now that we have made these discoveries about the main genomic drivers and of these characteristic spits-associated fusions, this is now giving us the opportunity to objectively make this diagnosis in older patients when we find a spitzoid lesion, we find the genomic and we see an absence of progression events, such as an absence of a TERP promoter mutation or deletions in CD2A, we can now make a confident diagnosis of a spitz nevis in an older patient, which before discovery, didn't have the information and the tools to do. I mean, that's revolutionary. How accessible is that genomic information for dermatopathologists around the country? Well, I think there's only a few major centers that do it routinely, but it's pretty accessible because even if they don't do it in an institution, there are like many companies that one could use, for example, Tempest does sequencing, Neogenomics does sequencing. So the, the technology is accessible, but the cost can be an issue. If patients have not met their deductible or if they're in box at it, that can always be an issue. 
I think the way that I approach it is that if it's a lesion that has some depth to it, so let's say if you measured it, the Breslow was going to be 0.8 or 1.0, and doctors would have a very significant consequence as to whether the patient was just going to have a conservative re-excision or have a aggressive re-excision with a sentinel node and, right. and so forth. I think the impact is so consequential that paying spending for sequencing is well worth it. On the other hand, if the lesion is a completely intraepidermal, the differential diagnosis would be more along the lines of a very superficial atypical spits or melanoma in situ, then I might put it back to the clinician and the patient and put it in their ballpark as to whether they want to spend the money for that differential since both lesions might be treated with a three to five millimeter margin. And the consequence, as far as treatment-wise, may not be as consequential, but it still may have an impact for the patient. Some people would cause a lot of anxiety just knowing that you had a melanoma, for example. So I'd at least give them the option. Well, that's a really useful algorithm. Can you just give a, a ballpark on the cost? Approximately. I think sequencing is mostly panel based these days. So they don't really charge by, you know, the number of genes. It's just basically if you do a panel, they charge you for a panel and it's usually about a thousand dollars, I would say is a typical cost of what the like lab is going to charge. What reinsurance reimburses that I'm not too sure about. I will mention that we do have some histochemistry stains that you can start out with for screening purposes. So for example, if that's your differential diagnosis on histology is that whether this is a spitz nevus or a melanoma, we would often start with a BRAF V600E IHC stain, which is a immunohistochemical marker that is specific for lesions that have that activating point mutation. And if it's positive, you can essentially exclude the lesion from the Spitz family. Okay. Now, if it's negative, then there's a lot of possibilities still. But if it's positive, at least you can exclude Spitz. With that cost, that's just still so much less than, for instance, getting a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the cost of the operating room, anesthesia, everything, I mean, that charge could be $30,000 easily for that operation with the Sentinel node. Would there ever be a case in which you'd recommend sequencing for a Spitz in a child? Oh, sure. So the algorithm that I typically use, okay, I incorporate a lot of the pretest probability. And the pretest probability factors that are used are one is the age of the patient. So the younger the patient, the more likely the lesion is going to be a genomic fusion or Spitz-related lesion. And then the other factor that I incorporate into the pretest probability is how classic the morphology is. Because Spitz have a range of morphologies. Some lesions that are Spitz have the most classic morphology with eosinophilic glassy cytoplasm, beautiful camino bodies, all the classic features. 
and some are not so typical. So when I see a lesion, if it's a young patient, say a two-year-old patient, and the morphology is just classic, then it really, I feel that sequencing it to identify the driver would be interesting, but not necessarily because the pretest probability is just so high that it's going to be a fusion. But let's say we're in a kid and it's still a young patient, but the morphology is just not classic. It's a morphology that is possible for a spitz, but it could also be a morphology that you see in a BRAF-induced nevoid melanoma. Then, even in a young patient, I would go for it. So the decision to sequence is based a lot about the pretest probability. I think if you want to do it efficiently and not waste money. And with these data, does this give more confidence to the typical spitz morphology in terms of the higher rate of genomic fusion occurrences are with the the typical appearing, those that are characterized, as you said, the Camino bodies and have a very classic morphology? Yeah. So the ones that have very classic morphology, they are more likely to be fusions and have the spitz-associated genomic changes. But if you look at it from the other side, if you look among all fusions, some of them could be classic and some of them may not be. So there are some cases that the morphology is, you know, you're a little bit lost. This could be a nevoid melanoma. It could be a spitz tumor. And you do the sequencing studies and you find a very classic spitz-associated RET1 fusion. And then you know that this is not anything bad. And, the, and it kind of like solves the riddle. I think one of the most important studies I'll also reference is a while back, we took a look at all our lesions that were spitzoid by morphology. So only diagnosed as spitz based on what they looked at, like at, under a microscope. Mm-hmm. Then we separated those cases into the cases that ended up having a bad outcome and those that had a good outcome. And then after that, that's when we sequenced them. And what we found was the ones that had the bad outcome had a very high overrepresentation of activating point mutations in BRAF and NRAS and were these spitz mimickers. So I think that we are starting to see that while you can have true spitz melanomas that are fusion induced and have a turf promoter mutation and act aggressively, that's possible, but that's rare, very rare. It's much more common when something ends up being an aggressive spitz that it wasn't a true spitz, that it was one of these spitz mimickers. And I think that's one of the most important things we can do is when we're sequencing these lesions is exclude a spitz mimicker, show that it has a true spitz associated fusion. And then if we do that, the odds are very much in favor that it's going to be an indolent lesion. That's very gratifying to hear. I mean, I think that's really important, as is the information that you present that spits are occurring in a higher proportion of middle-aged patients than we had previously thought. And the derm paths 
might need to reject that tendency to immediately call these spitzoid lesions in the older population a melanoma. Absolutely. And, and the molecular techniques need to just be used more frequently um, to, de to detect these chromosomal changes. This is something I think everybody can take home as when they get another diagnosis of a spitz neoplasm. Any other thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? What I expect we'll see in the future is that as we have more experience and use the genomic tools more, that the costs will come down and we may even start identifying very targeted panels that they can design to be cost effective and maybe even immunohistochemical markers that can be used that would indicate a high likelihood that this lesion is in the Spitz family. For example, we have IHC for NTRAC, we have IHC for the BRAF V600E. And so as we kind of get more experience, we could use more targeted markers. And I think that might help over time bring some of the costs down as well. When do you think we'll have those more targeted markers? I think soon. I think that this is something the technology is evolving so rapidly that every year we're going to be seeing changes. And it's amazing to see in my own practice career time, which has not even been that long, methodologies come into play, become obsolete, and be replaced by newer ones within just a matter of years. I think it speaks greatly to how fast we're making progress. And so I expect those changes in the next few years. Well, and uh, really improved outcomes, I think, for patients, thanks to the work you're doing. Thank you again, Dr. Garami, for joining us and sharing with our listeners support and work. Thank you for having me. We're all trying to find the right balance between saving time and providing the best care for our patients. That's why we're excited to tell you about Visual DX. Whether you're trying to solve a challenging case, engage patients by showing them medical imagery that looks like them, or look up the latest treatment options, Visual DX is here to help. Your peers have said recently that you can just see the sense of satisfaction and understanding from the patient while using Visual DX. Try Visual DX for free for seven days, then get 50% off a yearly subscription. Visit visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get the AAD discount. That's visualdx.com forward slash AAD to get started today. Thanks again for tuning in to another edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. For more dialogues, subscribe to us through the website of the American Academy of Dermatology, then link your subscription through your favorite podcast app. Remember, the subscription is free for residents. New podcasts are released each week in addition to free special bonus episodes. You can also listen to dialogues online through the AAD website. Thanks again for listening.